Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. Caleb coming to you with a really cool offer from my dear friend Chris Gilmore from Chris Outdoors. When you first get started exploring the outdoors, whether it be through hunting, camping, or survival skills, it can all get a little bit mm, daunting and maybe even overwhelming in regards to how much there is to learn. Having a solid foundation in tracking and naturalist skills can help open the door to bushcraft and make you learn much faster. It can also just make things outdoors that much for, uh, that much more fun and exciting. What bird made that call? What animal does that track belong to? What do those clouds mean in regards to the incoming weather? Nature awareness is a skill set that is transferable to all aspects of bushcraft and beyond. Whether you are a hunter, a trapper, an angler, a survivalist, a paddler, or a hiker, this skill set can help make you safer and make your experiences that much more enjoyable. Chris has taught literally thousands of people how to read sign, whether it be through tracks, bird language, or the environment itself. And with his new online learning course, Reading Nature's Language, he can help you take your skills to the next level. Even though it is based online, you will have access to tons of practical activities and challenges that will make you the woodland Jedi you always wanted to be. Check out the trailer and more details at www.learnnatureslanguage.com. And just to sweeten the deal for you, enter the promo code DRAGONFLY to get 25% off the course. Again, that is www.learnnatureslanguage.com with the promo code DRAGONFLY for 25% off. To know the landscape is to open up a door. Than you've ever felt before. We know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hello, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. And we're going to talk about probably one of my favorite things in the whole wide world. It's at the time of this recording, mid-February, uh, I believe it's February 18th currently as I record this, but when this episode drops is the beginning of March. This is going to be the last weekend of February, first weekend of March, and we're talking about something that comes up that time of year, and that is the sugar bush. The sugar bush and maple sugar and maple syrup are Oh, man, just such a favorite subject of mine. They are, it is, because it's all it's all inclusive, but it, it is one of the most fascinating and most peaceful times of year for me to be in the woods. I get to be out there every single day of the sugar bush, figuring it all out, boiling everything down, tapping the trees, getting more firewood, because we always need more firewood, and... It's just peaceful and beautiful. Ziguan uh, or Ziguan is the description of that time of year. Ziguan is the time when the sap starts to flow up the trees. And that's the early part of spring. That is like one of our first seasons in the Anishinaabek calendar is spring. Uh, Ziguan, that early part of spring, that time when the sap starts to flow up the trees is what Ziguan's talking about. And it's kind of in a sense Anishinaabek New Year because it's the newest part of the year. It's the it's when everything begins to renew and regrow and come back to life. Even though we don't really have, you know, a beginning or end to our years because the full cycle, it just goes around and around. 
in our in our kind of modern interpretation of like calendars, this would be the beginning of ours. This would be our new year is, is Ziguan, is that springtime. And so getting out on the land, you'll go out and there's going to be sometimes, not often where I've been living the last few years, but sometimes there'll be still like a foot or two of snow on the ground and you're trudging along in snowshoes and you're identifying those maple trees just by their bark and maybe how their canopy looks with their branches and how the branches are set up. And you're going to identify your trees and you're going to start tapping those trees and making baskets to catch the sap or using modern techniques. And you're drilling a hole and putting a spile in and hanging a bucket. And as you go along, you're going to continue to gather that sap for, you know, sometimes three weeks, sometimes six weeks. It depends on what that year is like. And as you gather that sap and you're boiling it, you're completely surrounded by the bush. You're surrounded by the maples, the ash, the ironwoods, the hemlock trees, the distant cedars and, and pines. And you're going to be hearing everything from ravens to barred owls in the evening and screech owls in the middle of the night, all the way to the spring birds coming back, the geese, all the geese, especially in my sugar bush because we're surrounded by swamps and wetlands in the lake. Um, but you'll hear all these different kinds of birds start to slowly trickle back into the neighborhood. And you get to experience it all with your eyes, your ears, your nose, all the smells of spring. Uh, as the snow recedes, you start to smell the mud. And after the mud, you start to smell leaks. And you can even smell the fiddleheads start to creep up. And it's just such a magical time of year. And it's it truly is my favorite time to be out on the land. But also we get to talk about one of my favorite subjects that happens during that time of year. And that is making that zinsabakwat, that maple sugar, and the benefits of it. Because a lot of people get into their head uh, from a lot of health food and nutritionists and pseudoscience, frankly, that sugar across the board is bad for you. That it is a horrible thing. You should avoid sugar at all costs. Zinsabakwat, maple sugar, is a little bit different. And we're going to talk about a little bit about that tonight as well on this episode. I also want to talk about the historic and pre-contact methods of maple sugaring of the Anishinaabeg people, of my people, because it's very different than what a lot of people think. There's a lot of misinformation out there from outdoor education centers, sugar shacks that have been running programs for people to come out to their sugar bushes, all the way to YouTube personalities who are telling everybody that the French and the English were the ones that introduced sugaring to the indigenous people, even though... We very rarely see any kind of sugaring from European settlers back in their homelands. Uh, somehow they taught the natives, even though we had been doing it since time immemorial. And we're going to talk about the evidence to support my claim that we've been doing this since time immemorial and didn't use things like hot rocks to do it, which we're going to break that myth down in this episode as well. So stay tuned. Here we go. So as we dive into this world of sugaring, Let's talk about the trees first. We got to talk about everything before sugar bush, before we can talk about the sugar bush. It's a very poor form to just be like, and now we're going to tap trees. So let's get, let's get started with the right way. First, we have to identify the trees that we're going to be getting this sugary liquid from. These are going to be your maples. Uh, there are many trees that you can tap actually that are not maples. Walnut, hickory. Uh, there's a, the, of course, the birch trees, like yellow birch, weenzik, or white birch wigwas that you can get sap from and you can boil it down to a syrup or you can boil it down a little bit uh, and then evaporate the rest. And I do take a kind of a difference of boiling and evaporation. Evaporation, you're going to use a lot lower heats and a lot more air movement because frankly, 
if you boil birch sap down all the way to syrup, it's often going to taste very burnt because the sugars are different and they can actually burn at a very lower, at a much lower temperature than maple sugars can. And so it comes with a lot nastier tasting or bitter tasting to me. So you have to use evaporation methods to do that much slower and at lower heats. So there is a difference between boiling and evaporating when it comes down to a lot of these trees. Now, the main tree that we go after for sugar is the maple family. And it could be whatever maple you have available. The Dakota people who live out in Minnesota and into, in towards the Dakotas, aptly named, uh, often had to rely on box elder. Now, the box elder goes by another name here in Ontario, Manitoba maple. And that's because it's a member of the maple family. And so even though it has a much uh, more diluted sugar, indigenous peoples have used it to make sugar. So it just is going to require more time cooking it down. So if you have box elders in your neighborhood, if you have black maple in your neighborhood, red maple, silver maple, I don't know, honestly, I haven't done enough research into Norway maple as an invasive species as whether we can tap it or not. I don't know. Uh, that's a great question that I should look into myself now that I'm saying this out loud. Uh, but of course, the most famous one is the sugar maple. And that is because it has the highest sugar density of any sap of any hardwood. That sugar being, the ratio being approximately, and this is an approximate, some trees and some areas and some conditions are going to fluctuate. There's going to be different variables. But on average, it's about 35 to 40 liters of sap for one liter of syrup. In comparison for birch, it's about 80 to 90 liters of sap to one liter of syrup. So a lot more sugar in that sugar maple, very aptly named. And we call that tree inanotic or enotic, or some people will even call it zinsabakwadotic, talking about that sugar maple or that sugar tree. Inotic or inanotic have a few different translations. The most common translation is the man's tree or the man tree, the man tree. And that's a few different reasons. I've heard of a lot of different translations and interpretations of why. I don't personally think it's correct. Uh, those uh, a lot of those translations, um, just because of my own study of the tree and my own observations of it, it doesn't. It's hard to explain, but it just doesn't feel very, um, quote unquote, masculine. If you want to think of it from that binary gender concept, but regardless, that's one of the names for it. Is an inotic or inanotic, and then zinzabakwaratig is another name for it. As I said. And so those trees, those sugar maples, your black maples, which are arguably the same tree, if you talk to some taxonomists and biologists, they're going to argue that the black maple is just a subspecies of sugar maple, and others will say, no, they're completely different species. Um, pick, pick your poison. Take your, make your choice for yourself. I, I personally consider them the same tree for the most part. They have the same attributes. They have the same leaf structure. They have pretty much everything the same except for genetics. And so from a bushman perspective, they're the same. They're the same tree. Black maple or inanotic or sugar maple are the same. So regardless of what tree it is, we have to identify them first. And that means you have to know how to identify the bark and identify the tree branches because there's no leaves on these trees. And some people, I've gone out in sugar bushes where people have tapped cherry trees and they have tapped uh, ironwood and they have tapped 
beach and they have tapped uh, pretty much every hardwood there could possibly be in their forest, assuming that they're all maple trees. Um, so first and foremost, identify your trees, learn to identify your trees. And even before that, we should start to identify the signs of it being ready for sugaring. The most obvious sign is temperature. So once the temperatures start to go above freezing, so zero degrees Celsius, uh, 32 degrees Fahrenheit, once the temperatures start to creep up above there in the daytime and drop below that temperature in the nighttime, we know it's sugaring season. And that can be very confusing because sometimes those kind of conditions happen in January or mid-February, or sometimes they just seem to happen all through the winter. And there can be a lot of variables for that. A lot of reasons for that. The number one reason is climate change, but not everybody wants to uh, believe that one or lean on that explanation. So what I usually look for is other signs simply than just it's above freezing in the daytime and below freezing at night. Traditionally, how I was taught to start getting ready and have a, like a warning sign that, hey, sugar bush is about to begin, sugaring season is about to begin, is about a week or two, usually about a week before the sap starts to really run properly, you're going to see crows, not ravens, crows on deck, crows, not gagagin, that's a raven. You're going to see those crows. You're not going to see one or two. You're going to see three to five, maybe a dozen at a time in the farm fields, out in the middle of the fields, kind of congregating, or they'll be packed up on the power lines along your road, or they're going to just going to be very, very active. And that's because the crows usually hang back uh, they do kind of migrate. They don't migrate like, you know, sandhill cranes or egrets or uh, Canada geese do, but they still do migrate. They go from the northern areas of like Algonquin Park, the Muskokas, and those crows that are very herbivorous. They actually prefer to eat grain for the most part. They do eat carrion just like a raven does, but not as much. They They really do prefer to eat corn and wheat and soybean and such. Well, they're going to fly south. They're going to go back into fields in Pennsylvania, uh, New York State, uh, Indiana, where there's still going to be some crop available and not such heavy snow. And therefore, they're going to be gone for a while. And in their place, you're going to see those one or two solitary or sometimes in pairs of ravens, gagagin. And trust me, there's a you, you can really tell the difference between a raven and a crow. It's really actually easy once you get the hang of it. The sheer size of the birds is the first giveaway. A raven is much bigger than a crow. Uh, a raven has a much larger beak. It's like the second largest beak I've ever seen in the wild. The largest beak I ever saw in comparison to the bird's size was a toucan in Columbia. But uh, beyond that, it's ravens. Ravens have massive beaks. And they're going to also be a little bit more ragged looking. They have a lot more ruffle, ruffled feathers around their neck and head. Uh, under their beak, like almost like a beard. Um, and so how I always remember is ragged ravens, whereas a crow very much looks like almost like a, just a big black robin, very smooth in their feathers. You can really tell the head from the neck on a, on a crow, whereas on a raven, it seems to all be kind of a big old beard or a big old mane on them. And their, their tail feathers look a lot different. Some people say that ravens are more rounded and crows are more squared off. Uh, I've also seen ravens where it just looks like the tips of their tail feathers on the ends, like the left and right tail feathers furthest out, are kind of clipped in or chamfered. Uh, and also, ravens are a lot more acrobatic in the sky. Crows are pretty much flying from A to B. 
And ravens will do the same thing, but they'll barrel roll and they'll flip and dive and swoop. And also just their calls. Uh, crows are like, caw, caw, caw. Ravens are, and very vocal. They have a huge range of communication. Not saying that crows don't, but ravens are very, very obvious with. And so when we start to see those crows coming back into the fields, that to me is one of the first indicators like, hey, I better get my buckets. I might want to get all my spiles ready. I might want to check on my big pots and my big cauldrons and pans and make sure they're clean and rated rock. I might want to make sure I got some firewood because I might have like a week, maybe two if I'm lucky, to get all that ready before I have to get those trees tapped. Uh, other Anishinaabek that I've listened to from up in Curve Lake and up towards Burley Falls, they'll talk about that the squirrels become more active and they're a little bit more rambunctious and they're chasing each other around and nipping at each other. Um, I've heard that personally. I've seen pine squirrels or AKA red squirrels do that in the middle of wintertime without any, any indicator that sugar bush is coming. Um, I've seen them do that all through the year, but that doesn't mean that it's untrue because the squirrels, just like porcupine or gog, these, these animals are actually going up and they're going to chew the bark off the branches and sometimes off the trunks of these trees, just as the sap starts to come up and they're going to get that very sugary, sweet, uh, sap and ingest that near the end of the, of the winter season. So it makes sense that as the sugaring season starts to commence and starts to begin, you're going to see a lot more energy in those squirrels. They're going to be running a lot more often because they're going to have a lot more sugar in their stomach. They're going to have a lot more sugar in their blood. And that makes sense. Even though I've personally, I prefer to lean on observing the crows, though there's no harm in checking out both and watching both. And of course, if these are both correlating with the fact that it's getting warmer in the daytime and cooler at night, now we know that sugar bush is well on its way, if not already underway. So all those signs we got to keep an eye out for, all those beautiful signs. So let's talk about the nutritional value of maple sugar. Um, this is where there's a lot of differing opinions and a lot of it you kind of have to lean on nutritional facts, but also some actual research into the value of the sugar. Maple sugar, the fully concentrated sugars of the maple tree, uh, for every tablespoon of maple sugar, there is about 30 calories, zero grams of protein or fat or carb. Uh, there's about nine grams of carbohydrates. We'll get to that in a minute. Zero grams of dietary fiber. Uh, the nine grams of carbohydrates come in the form of sugar. It is, it is a sugar-based nutrition. It is mostly sucrose uh, or glucose. Now, the interesting things around, around maple sugar is not necessarily that it is somehow better than all other sugars and it is safe. A lot of people think that if you're diabetic, you can just eat all the maple sugar you want. That's not really how it works. Um, it is slightly lower on the glycemic index than regular sugar. So it won't raise your blood sugar levels as quickly. That's the first thing is if you have full, uh, full maple sugar that is whole and intact and concentrated just by boiling, there's no reverse osmosis or heavy filtration uh, or any of that nasty stuff. Not want to say nasty, but stuff that I consider not necessarily good for the maple sugar itself. Uh, you're going to have a lot more interesting things because you're concentrating all the medicines in that tree as well. You're, you're concentrating all the things that are in that sap. And there are certain chemical compounds that when mixed together create this kind of beautiful cocktail that helps balance 
the insulin, the insulin response to the sugar in your bloodstream. And so it is healthier for diabetics if they have to have some sort of sugar. Maple sugar is one of the healthiest. Personally, I consider it much more healthier than coconut sugar or honey. Maple syrup and maple sugar are much healthier than those forms because it's full, it's whole. Uh, regular sugar or what we consider like white sugar or brown sugar has been heavily refined, heavily filtered, and heavily processed to remove everything they can that is not sugar. And because of that, you lose some of those chemical compounds that are naturally occurring in plant foods, those compounds that help balance out that gluca, that glycemic index, that glucose spike that you get, that sugar spike you get that causes an insulin spike to, uh, to respond to that. And then your sugar crash that is let, followed by very quickly an insulin crash. And that insulin spike and insulin crash and insulin spike and insulin crash eventually forms your body into being insulin resistant or insulin tolerant. And insulin tolerance can be simply translated as diabetes. So maple sugar in all of its beautiful ways doesn't really cause that spike to happen because it's a lot lower on that glycemic index. It's not going to raise it as quickly. It's actually going to cause an arcing effect rather than a spike effect. And depending on who you talk to, nutritionists, uh, biochemists and such, that ins that uh, that uh, caloric spike or that sugar spike that happens or ins uh, that sugar arc really can happen in a few hours or over 12 hours. So it, it can, it depends on how refined your sugar is, your maple sugar. I try to keep my stuff as whole as possible. I don't use reverse osmosis. I don't use heavy filtration or anything like that. The only filtration we really do is to catch the niter sand. Uh, and that's really only for making syrup. I, I'm almost exclusively just make sugar. I don't make syrup. Uh, for the most part, I sometimes will make a little bit for a couple of friends to have who've been helping at the sugar bush and they like syrup over sugar. Uh, I'll make them maybe one or two little bottles of it. I don't make my sugar or my syrup for sale. It's for personal consumption and for gifts to friends. So for me, uh, we don't really do much filtration and we don't do any reverse osmosis. And so everything stays in that sugar that came from that tree. Everything stays other than the water, of course. And so we're going to keep the manganese, we're going to keep the zinc, we're going to keep all those heavy, uh, not heavy metals, but those heavy minerals, those very good minerals, the calcium and everything else that's in that syrup and in that sugar. Uh, back in the 1960s, soon after World War II, actually at the height of World War II, uh, American anthropologists and, and scientists became very focused on nutrition. The reason being was they had to basically save Europe from starvation after World War II. A lot of people in Poland uh, and much of Eastern Europe were starving to death because of how the Nazis had been using them for resources. And so one of the first things of emancipating Eastern Europe was refeeding everybody and giving everybody good, healthy food. And so with that spike in interest of nutrition of like, what's the healthiest food we can give them? What's not going to get them sicker? What should we be giving them a lot of? This began this, this, this kind of 50 to 70 year craze that we've been experiencing of nutrition, of people like trying to tap into the money, the, the, the real money nutritional value that everybody should have this, everybody should eat that. And through that process, they studied different cultures around the world. One of those cultures were the Anishinaabeg of the United States along the southern shores of the Great Lakes, uh, Lake Superior, Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, et cetera. And the Americans analyzed uh, 
the men who were working in the sugar bush at that time, who were practically living off of just maple sugar. And we'll explain what else they're eating in a moment when we talk about the historic and pre-contact times of sugaring in North America. But needless to say, they were practically living off just the sugar, the syrup. And when they were being analyzed for uh, proteins, uh, any nutritional deficiencies really, because you know people living out there for a month to, to a month and a half, sometimes two months long in a sugar bush, living off just one food, you'd expect a lot of nutritional deficiencies, a lot of uh, dietary issues. And there was practically not, there, there was very little. And that's also because they had other food that they were eating out there other than just the maple sugar. But living off the maple sugar, they didn't see any actual true health defects. And to com- to corroborate with this, Anishinaabe Moen, our, our, our Anishinaabe language, the way Anishinaabe people speak, Anishinaabe Moen, did not have a word for diabetes until the last 70 years. Uh, I believe it was in 1954. Don't quote me on it, but I believe in 1954 is when Anishinaabe Moen speakers were actually talking about what word should we use for this disease. Uh, and they came up with a word that translates to the sugar sickness. People would get sick from eating sugars and all this high sugar content of their diet. They would get sick from from refined sugars, from white sugar, brown sugar, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the word diabetes goes back to ancient Greece. The, the Greek, the ancient Greek had diabetes in their world. And so they had a word for it, diabetes. Whereas we did not have a word for it until the 1950s. So was it because we couldn't think of a word until then? No, it's because we didn't need a word like that. Another great example of where words have to come along because things that have never been around show up is uh, diaper rash. Amongst Anishinaabek and Mashkegawak and Nihawak people, we carried our babies in what's called a tikanagan or a cradle board or dikanagan, depending on where you are. And in the cradle board, it's a wooden board with a footboard that goes around kind of like a little uh, horseshoe around the baby's body. And then they're tied into that with buckskin uh, fabric or tradition, uh, traditionally buckskin, smoke tan hide. Nowadays, a lot of cloth is used, a lot of applique and everything else like that. Uh, and then, of course, there's a headboard that goes around their body up above their head to protect them from if the cradleboard falls over or breaks off its uh, top line or anything and the baby doesn't get hurt. And they're swaddled into that. And before modern diapers, we would have a baggie in that between their legs full of sphagnum moss, dried sphagnum moss. Now, sphagnum moss has some really cool attributes to it. One of the things that has uh, that's really cool is it's antibiotic. It's, it's antibacterial, antifungal, antiviral. And so the, the, the moss that is between these babies' legs is going to be very absorbent because it's dry and, and moss can absorb upwards of 100 times its own weight in liquid. So if a baby poops or pees, it gets sucked up in that moss and keeps the baby's body dry. One of the first things that is a leading cause of diaper rash is moisture on the, on the midriff and down onto the thighs and groin. And secondly, it's antibiotic and antibacterial and antifungal. And therefore, there's no bacteria to start growing in that humidity and that moisture and cause a diaper rash. And it wasn't until the 70s, the 1970s, when cloth and plastic diapers started getting transported into the North Country that the Meshkegwak had to develop a word for diaper rash because their babies just never experienced it before. And so it's the same thing, the same uh, 
like an analogy can be explaining why we did not have a word for diabetes until the 1950s because we never experienced it before. Diabetes is now one of the leading causes of health issues in Indigenous people, where the average Canadian has a chance, has a, uh, the, uh, the average population of Canada is 13% diabetic. The average Indigenous population is 27% diabetic. So our population is over twice the rate of diabetes of the average Canadian. And it's not because, you know, we're always been unhealthy. It's because the diet we now have is unhealthy for us. And so when I look at our traditional food and I look at our traditional diet, I have to think when we are consuming 200 pounds per person, per household in maple sugar, historically speaking, and we don't have any evidence of diabetes, there's something going on there. There's something going on there that we have to take into consideration. So maple sugar, of course, was one of our main sweeteners that we had historically in pre-contact. Uh, we did not have refined cane sugars. We did not have huge amounts of honey. We did have wild honeybees and we would take the honey from them when we could. Uh, and the only other sweet things we had was fruit. So berries, uh, wild fruit from all over North America, the pawpaw, the berries, uh, all that beautiful stuff. And of course, the, the vegetables and fruits that were growing in our gardens. Um, would have some sugar, fructose mostly. And of course we had those things, but maple sugar was the most dependable, always had it in stock, always had it in your home sweetener that we had. It, we cooked with it. We added it to drinks. We added it to medicines. We added it to, uh, to roasts. We would rub our maple sugar all over porcupine, which we'll talk about in a bit, uh, but also venison. And uh, one of the oldest stories of like where, maple sugar comes from one of the old stories I've heard is uh, a young man was out hunting and he shot at a deer and missed the deer and he lost his arrow. And so he went off trying to track that deer. And a little later on, a girl from the village was going down with a macuck, a birch bark basket that's used to carry water. She was going down to a creek to get water and she was very, you know, a little bit lazy, a little bit tired. And so she decided to take a nap under a maple tree. And when she awoke, her bucket was full of water. She didn't have to go all the way down to the creek. So she came back to the village and when her father took a sip of the water, he, he jumped back almost because of how sweet it was. And he said, where did you get this? And they went back and they found that arrow had been stuck in a tree and sap was dripping down into a, into her bucket and he tasted it. It was very sweet. So they brought the bucket back to the village and they showed it to the community. And one of the men brought his son for who had shot a deer and he said that he lost an arrow and they took the leg of that deer, and they cooked it in that sap, and the venison became very sweet tasting, very good tasting. And that was one of the first ways that we consumed maple sap, was just simply boiling the sap with meat in it. And we'll talk about how that was used in the sugar bush in a bit, uh, in pre-contact and early contact and historic times. But I just find that's a really fascinating thing to point out. Is like we could just simply, you could just simply boil food in it and it tastes good. I often in the sugar bush, one of the first buckets we get every morning. Uh, we don't take it to the to the pan to boil. We take it to a uh, to our kettle and we make coffee in it. And all of our coffee is sugar bush coffee is just like your classic Folgers or Nabob or whatever you like. And you pour that into the kettle. It could be a percolator or uh, just a classic kettle, whatever you prefer. And then you just top it up with maple sap from the sugar bush that day, fresh sap. 
and just make your coffee in that. You don't have to add any sweeteners to it. You know, honestly, I don't think you have to add any dairy to it of any kind either, whether it's butter or milk or whatever. Uh, it's just good as it is on its own. And I've had people that come into our camp and they'll take that coffee and they will tell me again and again, I love that coffee. Midwinter, I'll hear from a lot of our folks that work in the sugar bush with me. I miss that coffee. Uh, all through the summer, people praise that coffee. They make it sound like I'm special because I make the best coffee. I don't. I make pretty mediocre coffee. I'm a percolator guy. I don't use French presses. I don't use an AeroPress. I don't use any of those fancy gadgets. Uh, I don't have an espresso machine, nothing like that. I have a classic old tin percolator, and in the sugar bush, I fill it with sap. And that's the coffee everybody prays. When they come to my house, they're like, ah, your coffee's okay. But when I'm in the sugar bush, my coffee is a blessing onto them by creator themselves. So it's the sap. It's 100% the sap. That's a secret for all of you to take with you to the grave. Don't tell anybody. This is just kept between me and you, okay? If you want the best coffee in the world, don't use water. Use maple sap. Anyways, let's get into more subjects about maple sugar. So let's talk about historic times uh, or current times. So how a lot of Anishinaabe people will cook their sugar is not too different or make their sugar is not too different than how most people run their sugar shacks. They're going to have taps. They're going to have or spiles. They're going to have buckets or baskets to gather the sap, and they're going to have somewhere to boil it. And that's to concentrate. You have to boil off and evaporate all that water content until you get the syrup and then eventually make that into sugar. And the traditional way that was done for a long time historically was either copper kettles or cast iron cauldrons, big, big cast iron pots. Modern days, we often use pans because they're a lot more efficient. There's a lot more surface area in comparison of heat to the sap. So the sap is a lot shallower, it's in a shallow, wide pan, and it's getting boiled from a lot of area, so it's going to evaporate much faster. Historically, though, it was cast iron cauldrons and copper kettles that were traded for, and that's how I prefer to do it. I don't know why. Uh, we do have a couple pans that we use that my good friend Ben has made us. Uh, he's welded some stainless steel pans for us, and they're great. They are great. I'm not in any way saying that they're not good. I like that he's made them and we do use them, but I actually prefer to use the older ways. Uh, it's got to just be something in my brain. I just prefer it. It tastes better to me. And it's very, very slow going in that way. And we'll set up a very simple system. Uh, a lot of people set up these really complicated rigs uh, with posts and beams and stuff and build it all up. What we do is you're going to make two ridge poles that are right beside each other and level to each other. And these two ridge poles can be made out of hardwood or softwood, just really thick softwood if you're going to use that, like cedar pole, like cedar uh, posts instead of poles. You want to use, you know, four or five inch diameter cedars if you're going to use those or pine or anything like that. And you're going to get four Y poles or forked branches or forked posts. And you're going to find two trees. And I like to use hemlock trees. They're about the same diameter as each other and they're usually pretty straight and they grow about the right distance apart from each other to get a good sugar uh, sugar camp set up around them. And what you're going to do is you're going to take the two uh, two Y poles and you're going to set the ridge pole into it and you're going to lean those poles against that tree on one side. And then from the other side, you're going to repeat the process. And now you have two ridge poles parallel to each other uh, and there's no ropes tying it on. There's no nails involved, no screws involved. Uh, last winter, 
me, uh, Matt Levac, and Rye, the adventure guy, went out and we set it up. And we we're like, oh man, we're going to be out here all day. And we set up that frame. In like, once we got the poles cut and into position and got ready to set it up, it took us like five minutes to set up and then a couple more minutes to adjust and get those poles to the right height so that everything was nice and level. And the reason we use two is a couple of reasons. First off, two poles are stronger than one. So one ridge pole could start to give way and break, two not as likely. Secondly, when you make a fire, and you probably notice this when you're cooking, the, the heat of the fire is not always where you put your pot. Um, and that becomes kind of problematic if everything is in a fixed position. Like if you use a tripod and you hang like a big steel tripod that you got a blacksmith to make, you were a, a metal ma a metal worker to make for you, or you bought from a store and you hang a cauldron, a cast iron cauldron from it with a big heavy chain and you fill that with several hundred liters of sap, it's going to be very hard to move that when you realize that your fire is burning better somewhere else. And sometimes the other issue is the fire is burning so hot that you're about to have a boil over, that the sap is going to boil over and dump out of the out of the pot. And in that situation, again, a big heavy cauldron on a tripod is really hard to move. It's really challenging. And so what we do is we make wooden pot hangers out of uh, forked branches, out of branches in a trunk or something like that. Uh, you've all probably seen in bushcraft different pot hangers or pot hooks. And what we do is we attach those to another stick, to another pole that's about wrist thick to forearm thick. And that rests across the two ridge poles. And now it's almost like a reel on a track. And so we can hang our pots from this ridge pole. And if the fire's burning better off to the left, we can roll our pot over to the left. And if it's getting too hot, we can roll it away from the fire. It's a very efficient way to do it. I find it much better than almost any other system I've used or have seen people use. And frankly, it's it's amazingly simple and it's been used since as long as there's been cooked pots made of metal. As long as we've had kettles made of copper or cast iron cauldrons, you'll see old photographs of Anishinaabek in their sugar bushes and you'll see that two-pole system just held up with forked sticks and then one stick across the ridge poles holding the pot hanger in place. And you can just roll it down like a conveyor system almost just roll it back and forth on its track and it's very very efficient very simple to use and again it's done in minutes and that is the pragmatism and poetry of anishinaabeg life in the woods simple elegant and extremely efficient we aren't going to do something complicated unless that's the only way to do it we're going to do things that are simple and fast and that's the elegance to them pragmatic poetry of Anishinaabeg life in the bush. I should, I should coin that term. I should coin that term and make that my thing, like trademark that or something. Anyways, once that's all set up, now we're going to go out and tap our trees. And historically in modern day, we're going to use a drill, uh, could be a, uh, kind of a, bra uh, what's it, what's it called? A bracing bit, or it could be uh, a modern power drill, like electric drill. And most folks are going to use something like a seven sixteenths of an inch uh, drill bit with a uh, gauge depth or depth gauge on it so that they don't drill too deep into the wood. We just want to get into that bark and into that sap wood a little bit, and then we're going to drive metal spiles. And nowadays you can get poly, uh, poly metal, uh, sorry, not poly metal. You can get steel or tin spiles traditionally and historically in modern day, but also you can start getting these poly plastic 
uh, spiles. And I find those not as effective. And also I don't like contributing to plastic as, uh, as much as possible. I try to avoid using plastic whenever possible. I would rather use metal any day of the week. And that's kind of how we do it. And then from there you hang your buckets. They're usually two gallon buckets. Sometimes they're just two liter, but for the most part, you're going to find two gallon buckets out there. And it's good to have a lid to keep, you know, dirt and bugs. Cause that's that warm weather starts bringing out the moths, starts bringing out some beetles, starts bringing out the spiders, and they're all going to crawl in and fall into your bucket as well. Uh, you're also going to find often enough deer and other animals drinking that sap on you. Squirrel, uh, squirrels a lot, but also deer, you're going to see them. So that bucket lid is very helpful at keeping them out of it. Uh, is it necessary? No. If you just, if you can't afford to have everything, you can do away with the, with the lids. The other benefit is if it's raining, which does happen in the sugar season, is you can sometimes get some rainfall. And that means that the buckets are going to be mostly rainwater. And that means a lot more boiling in your future. Um, so again, the lids can be helpful in that sense as well, that you can get rid of, uh, the risk of it being mostly just rainwater that you got to boil away and just add more work to your day. But another thing that we have to look at is before we actually tap, we have to look at our sugar bush. One of the coolest parts of learning about traditional sugar bush for me has been learning the traditional ways and the life ways around it. Part of that was what we did when we got to the sugar bush, when we were going to the sugar bush. And there's a lot of differing opinions amongst a lot of Anishinaabek people and like debates about who actually went to the sugar bush historically and, and pre-contact. Some people are saying that it was run by the women, um, which is fine. That's a, that's a completely valid argument. Um, others say it was all strictly men. And the, the argument for the strictly men was the men would leave the winter camps with the elderly, uh, with the elders and the children and the wives and other women who are too busy with their children to take care of themselves and start making the fishing nets that are going to be necessary right after sugar bush. Cause right after sugaring season is the walleye run. And right after the walleye run is the ch uh, Creek shub sucker run and the sucker runs all over Ontario. And so we need to have a lot of nets ready to catch all those fish. And so it makes sense. Uh, from a from a distanced point of view to say it makes sense that the men would go and take care of the sugar bush. Others say that it was the youth, that it was the people like young men and women who didn't have kids that would go and get the sugar bush built and set up and start tapping everything. And then everybody else would join them. Um, I've heard differing opinions from all over Anishinaabegaki. I've heard it from elders like Doug Williams, who said strictly it was the women that ran it. I've heard uh, from elders and knowledge holders down in the States among in Michigan and Minnesota who said it was the men who ran it. And I've heard differing opinions of like the youth ran it and the youth were the ones that managed it, took care of it. Regardless of who it was, they would have to leave behind as much food as possible for the other people. They wouldn't want to bring too much food with them. They want to make sure other people are being fed uh, while they make the sugar. And also they don't want to be distracted from anything other than tapping those trees and getting that sap boiled down. And so hunting and actively looking for food while boiling is not really practical. And so bows and atlatls and rifles and shotguns would be often left behind. Again, especially for those folks who are being left back in the village so they can hunt and fish and trap. And so all that makes a lot of sense to me. 
and so once they get to the sugar bush, they have no food, they have no hunting tools with them, and they have to get the tap the trees tapped, and they have to make sure they get as much sap as possible. And there's someone out there in those woods who's competing with them for that sugar. And that individual is a being known as Gog or porcupine. And that porcupine, I've been, when I was working up in Wyerton at the uh, Outdoor Ed Center near Oliphant and between Oliphant and Wyerton, uh, I remember we were working in, a sugar, in the sugar bush that they had and we didn't have any birch bark to start the fire that day. And so the person running it, uh, one of the head instructors was like, hey, Caleb, I was the co-op student at the time, go get me some birch bark. And so I was in my snowshoes. Uh, one of the very last times I was in the sugar bush during heavy snowshoe conditions. Uh, I'm hoping this year we get it because I miss that. It's so fun to walk around the sugar bush in your snowshoes, tapping trees and pulling the toboggan behind you with all the buckets and everything. It's just, it's better than walking around all the mud and sludge of the springtime. But anyways, um, I went off and I saw a birch tree about a hundred yards away and I started walking up to it. And as I got about 10, 15 yards, I realized this is not a birch tree. This is a maple tree. But all that white bark I was seeing was the trunk of the tree, the sapwood of the tree. And the dark splotches that usually see on birch was actually the leftover remnants of bark. And it was a, it was a fresh tree and it was bleeding sap out of its roots. And when I looked up to the very top, there sat a porcupine chewing away at the branches, getting the last of that sugary bark that he could he or she could get from that maple tree. They will completely girdle maple trees and debark them from top to bottom if given the opportunity. And... <laughs> That was the day I started understanding why a lot of my elders would go out just before sugaring season and hunt porcupine. Last week of February, first week of March is porcupine hunting time in Anishinaabe communities. And they'll go the, uh, nowadays with 22 rifles, sometimes the 17 HMR. I know a couple that use shotguns. I won't use a shotgun on a porcupine. It just feels inhumane. Not inhumane, but just like overkill. <laughs> it's it's overkill to me. Um and they'll kill them and then they'll skin them. They'll take all the quills off and give them to the people that do quill work and they take the meat and they eat it. And eating porcupine is a, a porcupine is a delicacy in Anishinaabe Gaki. It's, it's one of our favorite meats in the woods. And a lot of people turn their nose up when I say that. And that's because they're probably their only experience of eating porcupines when they're living off of pines and spruce and such. But if you find a, a porcupine in a sugar bush, they are maple glazed and porcupine should describe to you what this animal is going to taste like. Porcupine is a anglicized way of pronouncing the French word that describes a spiny pig. They taste like pork. They taste like pork. If they're in, and if they're in a sugar bush, they taste like maple glazed pork. It is absolutely positively delicious. And so what we would traditionally do is we would go out. And the other cool thing about porcupine, uh, before I say that next part, is you don't need a firearm or a bow to kill them. If you get a good heavy stick and you, and I'm not telling people to do this right now. I'm Take my word for this. If you throw a good heavy club or stick at a porcupine up high in a tree, you will knock them out of that tree. And nine times out of 10, when they hit the ground, they break their neck and they die instantly. The other... One time out of 10, you have to club them again with another stick and finish them off. Porcupine do not require modern weapons or any refined weapon to kill them, to hunt them. All you have to do is find where their dens are and look up in the trees where they're, where they're going to be actively chewing away. 
and either pull them from their den and club them or knock them out of the tree. And if they don't break their neck, club them. And so if you look at early contact, pre-contact and historic times of Anishinaabek leaving behind all their hunting tools with their families and going out to sugar, the first thing they're going to want to do is kill every porcupine in that sugar bush. Not all the porcupine in all the forest, but all the porcupine in that sugar bush for several reasons. First, that's a very high amount of fat and protein right there. Secondly, they're your competition. They're going after the same maple trees you're going after. And thirdly, you got to protect those maple trees for next year. So eradicating the porcupine in that part of the forest is beneficial to the Anishinaabek people for their sugar bush. And when you look at what we would then do with that meat is simply you skin it, gut it, throw it into a pot and fill that pot with sap and start cooking it down. And you're going to have, baby, trust me, it's, it's just so damn good. If you ever get the opportunity to eat porcupine, try it with maple syrup or maple sugar or maple sap if you got that and cook it in that. Don't cook it in broth. Don't cook in it. Don't cook it in a bunch of salt and pepper. Just cook it in maple sugar and you will thank me. Trust me, you will thank me for that. It is absolutely delicious. Um, I'm not telling you to go out and kill every porcupine you see with a stick, okay? It's it's not the most humane way. It's not the most, most, most ethical way to kill porcupine, but that's how it was done traditionally. Um, and porcupine are not an animal you can legally hunt in Ontario, by the way. There's a lot of cool information out there about why. And one of the stories I heard about why we cannot actively hunt porcupine in Ontario and much of Canada is because that very reason. They're so easy to kill without any hunting device. That if there was a trapper who's stranded in the wilderness, a hunter who was lost, or a bush pilot that has crashed their plane, the Canadian government wanted to make sure that they were able to find easily accessible meat sources like porcupine. And it's very easy to eradicate a, por a, porcupine, popul a porcupine population. That's a tongue twister. It's very easy to eradicate a porcupine population from a forest. Very, very easy without even having to use modern or refined hunting weapons. So please don't go out and start bashing in the brains of my dear little friend, the porcupine. Uh, but that's what Anishinaabek did traditionally. Nowadays, we use 22 caliber rifles or 17 HMRs. Uh, and we'll shoot them from the tree branches or we'll find where their dens are and wait for them to come out and then we'll shoot them there. Uh, is that ethical? It's honestly, as I've said before in hunting, on our hunting sessions or hunting episodes, ethics come down to the personal ethics and personal morals. Personally, I find it ethical because that is how we have always done it. And we're only taking the ones that are in the sugar bush. And those are the meat sources that we're going to have while we're tapping and boiling down that sap. We don't have a lot of access to venison that time of year. We don't have a lot of access to fish that time of year. And so porcupine is the food source that time of year for us. Last year, we didn't have any porcupines in the sugar bush uh, because the year before I hunted them pretty good that year, uh, back in 2019. Uh, and also last year, we had a roadkill deer delivered the night before we began tapping the trees. So we had a lot of venison to feed everybody. So we didn't really need to rely on my dear little friend, the porcupine. But uh, historically, that's what was done. Now let's talk about the pre-contact methods of Anishinaabek sugar bush. And this is where a lot of, not a lot of, but a decent amount of misinformation kind of resides. There's been a lot of opinions made 
by non-Indigenous people who think they know what they're talking about. And sadly, most of them haven't actually looked into the archaeological record or talked to Anishinaabek people. So much so that as we've lost a lot of our own knowledge over the years, a lot of Anishinaabek people are now recounting the same information and telling a lot of people about the same stuff. And it's just, frankly, not true. And I've gotten kind of some angry messages from people, and I've had some pretty heated debates with a lot of people about how we made maple sugar uh, pre-contact. Because, of course, as everybody knows, metal didn't arrive to the Americas until Christopher Columbus sailed the, 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 the Blue Sea and all that stuff. Uh, first of all, we had copper. Uh, copper was and has been around for 5,000 years in the Great Lakes region. Uh, copper has been turned into fish hooks, spearheads, knife blades. Even There's even some claims that I've heard of Mokotogan or crooked knife blades. And more recently, I heard that there's an axe head up on the northwest end of Lake Superior somewhere at a university. I would love to see it because I've been making copper axes for several years now. Uh, and I would love to see what a traditional Anishinaabek axe head would look like. I made one a couple of years back at the Intertribal Food Summit, and an elder there looked at it and said, I've seen this axe made by our people, which was so heartwarming to hear that he'd seen that same axe pattern that I smithed out with my little soup can forge on an anvil. He's seen, he had seen that exact same axe head made by our people in the past. But I have not seen it yet. I'm hoping to find one in the next few years at a archaeological site myself or talk to and see one at a museum or an archive somewhere. But I have not seen the copper axe. Uh, there's also some claims out there of copper pots. I have not seen those. I know that our ancestors did have stone pots that were made out of steatite, chloritic schist, soapstone, and even catlinite, which is red pipestone. Uh, that have been all over the place. The Inuit or Inuit people had them up on the coastlines and they would use them as egg boilers. They'd make these big blocks of pipe of uh, soapstone, carve them out into a pot, fill that with eggs and gulls, and then fill that with salt water or seawater, and then boil those eggs in that pot. So we know that pots existed here made of stone, but not necessarily copper, steel, or iron. However, this leads a lot of people to assume that how the native peoples of Canada and North America made their sugar was taking logs and chopping them roughly into a hollow, filling that with sap and throwing molten, not molten, but glowing red hot rocks into the sap. Now, let's talk about hot rock boiling for a second because it is a valid method of cooking. If you're making a soup or a stew or anything like that in the woods, Hot rocks work very well. The reason being is, think about your stove uh, and a cook pot full of water. Your stove element has to heat up first. Then it has to heat the pot to at least 100 degrees Celsius before it can transfer all that heat into the water and bring it to 100 degrees Celsius, which is the temperature of boiling water. That's a lot of time, usually about depending on how much water you have in that pot in your kitchen, usually if you're making like macaroni and cheese or something, it'll be eight to nine minutes for that pot to start boiling. And even over an open fire with a good raging fire and you've got a pot full of water, it can take about eight to nine minutes, sometimes even more, sometimes less to before it comes to a rolling boil. On the other hand, when those rocks are red hot and they hit that water, 
they transfer all of their caloric energy instantaneously to that water. The water around that rock is already boiling. That's why it's hissing and bubbling and spurting. And as you keep adding hot rocks and transferring the old cool down rocks back to the fire, and you keep transferring these rocks back and forth from fire to water, fire to water, uh, within a few moments, like 30 seconds to a minute, you can have a rolling boil. And from there, keep it at a very steady pace by just transferring hot rock to water, cold rock back to fire, heating it back up and transferring it back and forth. If you have about a dozen stones in Europe, you'll often see what's called stone boilers or stone eggs. They're egg-shaped, egg-sized rocks, polished stone, usually made of things like basalt or uh, some sort of soapstone or steatite. And they are very smooth so that they don't collect a lot of ash. And that way you don't get too much ash in your soup or your stew or whatever you're cooking, pudding, whatever it may be. And those stones are transferred usually about a dozen. You're going to have a dozen. You're going to throw in like three at a time. Starts getting it up hot. Pull those out. Drop in three more. Put those stones you pulled out back in the fire. And by the time you get back to those stones, they're already red hot. And you just keep transferring back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And this can happen in 30 to 45 seconds. You can have a rolling boil. And as you keep transferring the stones from the water back to the fire and back to the water, you can keep this up for hours. Like truly, you can keep this up very steady for hours. And it uses actually a lot less fuel because all you got to do is keep a small fire to keep the rocks hot. So you don't even have to have as big of a fire to boil that same volume of water. You just need a dozen or so egg-sized, very smooth, thermally stable rocks. And that's the main thing I got to say there. They have to be thermally stable. Uh, because if there's something like granite or quartz or limestone, as soon as they hit that sap, they're going to crack and break and start to fall apart. So you need to use things like basalt, uh, which can be found in the Great Lakes region, just not around me very much. Uh, or you can use steatite, chloritic schist, and other soapstones and similar style rocks in that form. The next part is... They have to be very, very, very smooth. You got to polish them very smooth uh, to prevent as much ash as possible from getting into your food. And so I'm not saying that you can't hot rock cook. I've had a lot of people think that I'm saying you can't cook with hot rocks. You can. You can't make maple sugar with hot rocks, though. Interesting, right? What do I mean by that? You can't, you can't use it. I mean, you can, like physically you can, you can make maple sugar with it, but you shouldn't because we've done the experiments. We've done tests again and again. We brought pH strips out with us to test the syrup afterwards. And I can tell you this, what, what will happen is if you take a rock right from the fire and drop it in the sap, you're going to have ash all over that stone, no matter how well you clean it. And I mean that you can brush it with a brush made of straw or cattail or boughs from a birch, uh, not a birch, a balsam fir, and dust off all the ash you can, there's still going to be some ash on there. And so some people make a dip bucket, which is a little bucket of cold, clean water that they can dip the, uh, the stone into really quickly to wash off some ash, and then they can plop it into their syrup and keep boiling. And that's what we do for cooking with the rocks, to get as much ash off as possible. We dust them off, do a quick dip into some cold water and then toss them into the pot, into the, into the basket or the, uh, the hollow log, whatever it may be that we're cooking in. But you're still going to have some ash. There's going to be some transfer of ash no matter what. 
And for super stew, where you're going to still have similar volume of water from beginning to end, it's not that big of a deal because it's, it's not that much alkali getting in. But when you're boiling it down, you're taking, again, 50, 40 to 50 liters of sap for every liter of syrup. That's a lot of ash getting in there. And we're not making just one liter of syrup when we're out there. We're making many liters of syrup. This year we made uh, five gallons of syrup for personal use between me and the, uh, the folks that worked in the sugar bush. And then we made a lot more sugar beyond that. So we're concentrating this quite a bit. So we're taking hundreds of liters of sap and boiling it down to several liters of syrup. And in that process, if we use hot rocks, which we did as an experiment back in 2017, and we did it again to confirm in 2018, uh, you will see uh, a problem start to begin. And the main problem is uh, the ash. And no matter how well you clean those stones, no matter how well you, no matter how meticulous you are, you polish them as smooth as you can, you put them into the fire, make sure it's a hot burning, clean burning fire so there's not a lot of ash in the fire. Uh, and then you take them out, you dust them off with a brush of some sort, and you dip them into cold, clean water, and then put them into the sa into the sap bucket or into the 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 pot, the sap pot that you've got. Uh, yes, you can boil it all down. We did that. We made one whole liter of syrup both times, and then we dipped a pH strip in it, and it came out with the rating of nine. On the pH scale, nine is bleach. So that sap, that syrup that we made had the, had the alkaline level of bleach. Think about that for a second. What we just did was created one liter of very sweet tasting poison. It doesn't work. And I've had a few people toss out theories or like, yeah, a friend of mine hauled out a log and he filled that with sap and he hot rock boiled. Yeah, the middle was really gross. But the uh, on the edges of the of the of the on the end end grain of that log, we saw uh, foaming liquid coming out. And yes, that is still some of the sap leaking through and steaming through the wood and coming on the ends. We've done the tests on that; it still came out at like eight and a half. That's that's not enough filtration to make it safe. And so all these people talk about our boiling, and they talk about this thought that we use hot rocks. And when you point that out, that it's too alkaline to consume. You'll hear people like certain individuals on YouTube uh, who are true experts, really. YouTube is nothing but experts. Uh, you, you clearly need a degree in anthropology or archaeology to talk about archaeological things on, on YouTube. Um, and they'll say, well, it must have been taught to them by the Europeans when pots came over. And that's how they leave it. The French and the English showed the Ojibwe how to boil syrup. Before then, they may have only... Uh, concentrated to a warm, sweet-tasting liquid, but they didn't take it all the way to sugar because that would have killed them. Because you told us it would have killed them because of your experiments. And so they're taking this data and they're just making assumptions. They're they're coming to conclusions that Europeans had to teach us how to do things because we're just primitive, nearly cavemen to them. There's this amazing thing that has been around this part of Ontario and all Nishnabiaki between 3,500 years and 5,000 years now. And it's called clay pottery. Clay pottery. We've had clay pottery as long as the ancient Greek have had clay pottery. 
We've had clay pottery for thousands of years before contact. And back in 2019, I commissioned Tashi Smoke uh, Santiago, who's from Aquasasne First Nation. Sorry, Aquasasne Mohawk Territory. My friends in Aquasasne, I apologize for that. Uh, Tashi made me a clay pot, a beautiful clay pot that was fired and made exactly how Ganyageha or Mohawk people make their clay pots. It was absolutely stunning pot. I love it to death. I still have it. It's beautiful. And we experimented with it. And we boiled in it. And what we did was we would... Uh, we built a wind wall to make sure that there wasn't going to be any wind hitting the pot because, of course, that could cause it to break. Uh, cold wind with a hot pot, it's going to break. So we made a wind wall, a wind barrier out of just logs, deadfall that we found around the camp, stacked it up and made a little wall. And then we set it on top of three similar sized stones that kind of like a tripod or the legs of the pot. And then we began to rake coals underneath it uh, from our other fire where we were boiling in cast iron pots. And I would just take this piece of ash wood bark and lay that on top. It's kind of like a pot lid. And just to keep in the heat, not really expecting much. And we just kept feeding it coals. And frankly, we kept forgetting about it because we we're so bu busy with all the other cast iron cauldrons boiling up and cooking up and cooking down and all that, that we kind of forgot about it. And this was on the very last day of Sugarbush that we decided to do the experiment because the pot arrived a little late and we had to get everything else done. And... There's another family here in my community that does sugar bush. They're, they're really the only ones that do it at a professional level. They have a full-blown sugar shack, and they do about 400 to 500 buckets a year. And they have a big evaporator system and all this cool, really cool gear uh, at their sugar shack. I can't remember the name of their company, but their names are Pam and Jerry Zentz. And Jerry and Pam are salt of the earth. I absolutely adore these two. Their kids are amazing. Their family are amazing. They are some of my favorite people in my community. Not that I have any, un not like I have any people that aren't my favorites down here, but they are definitely on the top of the list. Top tier salt of the earth, awesome folks. And it just happened to be their last day boiling at the same time as it was our last day boiling because the sap was turning kind of funky. And I'll talk about that in a moment too. I'll talk about how like we know when it's time to end. So we were at our sugar bush. It was me, my friend Radic, and I believe my friend Rashawn was there still. And we were just kind of finishing up. It was like five, six o'clock. We had a bunch of students out that day to, for the presentation that we did. We used to, when we could still have students, we could still, you know, come together and socialize. Uh, we would do uh, every year this annual event called Anishinaabek Sugarbush. And while we were there, they all got to see us cooking in the clay pot. We would check it, you know, every hour and we'd be, oh, no, we got to get some more coals over there. And we'd rake a bunch of new coals over and kind of slow cooked it from like 9 a.m. till 5 or 6 p.m. And Jerry came over. He brought a cigar out. Him and I were puffing on cigars to celebrate the end of the sugar bush together because he does everything with an evaporator. And it's still cool because it's all wood fire still. But he really likes our setup. Jerry just likes our – he likes what we do, which is one of the other reasons I like him. He likes what I do, and I like what he does. So we get along really well. And uh, he comes over. We got some chairs set out. We're all just kind of relaxing and enjoying the fire. And Jerry just happens to look over at that clay pot and says, now, did that work at all? I know you were really curious about it, so did it work? And I went over and said, you know what, man? I, we kept forgetting about it all day. I have no idea if it even worked. And I pulled that ash bark, quote, unquote, lid off of it. And we found sugar, not burnt sugar. And there was still a little bit of syrup left, but there was sugar in there. 
and I sat there dumbfounded. We started raking more coals over to it and watching it boil again and start to cook again because it had died down quite a bit. And we watched it. And what would happen is anybody that's worked in a sugar bush knows what's boil over. Boil over is as the salt, uh, sorry, salt, the sugar crystals start to form, they begin to create a matrix that can start to grow. And just like when you boil pasta or anything else, those bubbles start to froth up and build up and use the walls of the pot as support to climb out and boil over. And so we never really had to worry about that with this pot because we kept forgetting to keep it hot. But as we heated up, we watched it and we try to boil over. But the inside of that clay pot was porous, almost like cast iron, but even more aggressive. If you rub your finger on the inside of that clay pot, it almost feels like sandpaper. And that's because as it's firing, gas bubbles form in the clay and pop and break. And these little broke pores are left and they get fired and become hard ceramic. And they have these little tiny edges all over them. And so as those bubbles would try to boil up, they would fall down almost immediately. So they'd boil up, fall down, boil up, fall down, boil up, fall down, because they couldn't use the pot as support to get higher. And so it would just boil and froth and boil and froth and keep collapsing on itself. And as it did this, it stirred its sugar. And so there's a few different types of maple sugar that we create. There's cake sugar or candy, maple candy, where in traditional times and historic times, we would either make a birch bark cone, which is a piece of birch bark cut in a semicircle, and then you fold it so that the two edges that are flat touch and then stitch those together and then put a string in there through the, the tip of the cone. Uh, it's almost like a funnel, so you want to plug that up with a big knot and then the string hangs outside of it. And you pour your molten sugar when it's just at the right time into that cone and it firms up and solidifies into cake sugar and that's called a cone. It's called a sugar cone. And a sugar cone is how we used to carry maple sugar from camp to camp, but also how we would trade it because it's averages. When you make them the right size, you cut all your cones the same size and stitch them together. It's a very easy way to measure and it easily can become a currency for bartering. So if you figure out how much, how big a cone has to be to hold one pound of sugar, you can make a ton of cones and make all your cones full of one pound on give or take one pound of sugar. And so that's one way that we would use cake sugar. Another way is we would actually carve basswood molds. And they could look like a bison or a horse or a bear paw or an arrowhead or whatever you want to look like, a maple leaf. And then you pour the molten sugar into that. It solidifies and you split very carefully and break that mold and take out the maple sugar. Or some people even grease them with bear grease or nowadays butter or lard and then pour the maple sugar in there and pop them out as carefully as they can. Though in my experience, splitting the molds is a lot easier, personally. Um, and so that's one way we can make maple sugar. The other way we make maple sugar is we make granulated sugar. And what that requires is instead of letting it cool in one piece, undisturbed in a mold, we will pour it into a trough. And that maple sugaring trough is usually made of basswood, sometimes poplar. I've seen some made of maple, but not too many. Most of the time, it's basswood. And we'll use a sugaring paddle, which is a small cooking paddle, usually made of cherry wood, sometimes birch, sometimes maple. And when that sugar is at the right consistency, and it's very hard to explain on a podcast what's the right consistency for maple sugar, but basically you're going to be watching it with your eyes, ears, nose, and even your taste buds and the touch and feel. So all your senses are involved. 
And when you feel that it's right and everything looks right, you pour it into the trough and you start rapidly stirring it and moving it. And as you do that, the wooden trough is going to draw in some of the leftover water, which is why we don't seal it. We don't seal it with any kind of tongue oil or any shellac or anything. But also the wood is, is insulative. So if you did this in a steel pot, you don't have a lot of time to sugar. You have like a few minutes to get it all done. With a wooden trough, it insulates so that that molten sugar stays molten for longer. And as we agitate it with that cooking paddle, with that sugaring paddle, we're grinding all those crystals and breaking them and making them fall apart from each other so they don't create a solid matrix into one cake. And so it becomes granulated maple sugar. And the more agitating you do, and the harder you stir for the longer you go, the fluffier and softer and lighter in color it will be. And it is so delicious. It is so good. We keep that. We keep those sugars in uh, very airtight and watertight containers, usually glass mason jars uh, with very good lids on them. And I'll use that all year round to make into rubs for bar for ribs for barbecue, or I'll use it for baking with, for making cookies or making breads. Uh, I'll use it for everything that you would usually use white sugar for. And if I run out of that kind of granulated sugar, that's when I start using the cake sugar and I'll just take a butter knife and scrape away at the sugar and get chunks of the sugar coming off that I can dissolve in the liquid that's going to be cooking with. Um, or just scrape it really fine with a cheese grater or something and get granulated sugar from that in a sense. The cool thing with using the clay pot is because it would start to bubble up and collapse and it's getting hit by these coarse edges of the pot the whole time, it started to granulate itself. This is like a slow cooker for maple sugar. This is, this is a crock pot for maple sugar. This was an amazing discovery for us was first off, there was little to no ash in there whatsoever. We, our, the pH strip showed that it had pretty much the same um, uh, pH level as the sap. Not very much difference at all. Uh, in comparison to hot rock boiling, huge difference, huge difference of comparison. But also it made the granulated sugar for us. Whereas when I have to use cauldrons or kettles or sugaring pans, we have to do heavy trough work, stirring that sugar around. And we have to do all this focus to make sure it's the perfect sugar consistency before we pour it into those, those, those troughs, or we're going to have to start from scratch all over again. All these amazing things happen with that clay pot that we don't have to worry about them. We don't have to worry about all these steps, these extra things. But at the same time, I really enjoy that part. I really enjoy stirring the sugar. It's kind of like this um, beautiful release at the end of the whole day. When you have the sugar at the right consistency, you pour it into that, into that trough and start stirring it and agitating it, breaking it down and granulating it. It's just beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I love it so much. But it's also pretty cool that our traditional ways didn't have to worry about that. They could just do it themselves. The clay pots can do the work for you. Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely stunning part of sugar bush life. And there's so much more. There's so many things about the sugar bush that are just beautiful and peaceful and loving and a lot of that comes from for me getting in touch with my ancestry getting in touch with my anishinaabek heritage and i've been running my own sugar bush since about 2013 2012 
So not very long, but I've been working in sugar bushes since I was in high school. And I've been working with other people in their sugar bushes, like Doug Williams, uh, the folks over in Wyerton, their outdoor education center is where I first got started. And then more recently, I was working with cousins who were starting up their own sugar bush and, of course, helping Jerry and Pam at their sugar bush. And it was about 2012, 2013 when I decided I want to start my own. I, I felt like I had enough experience, enough knowledge on how to do it. Man, was I still inexperienced. I've learned so much more in that time about how to peel birch bark to make our traditional sap buckets uh, in the wintertime, how to get winter bark off them, how to make the sugar cones, how to read the sugar so that we know that it's ready to turn into sugar. It's no longer liquid. And how to read the trees and know that it's time to stop tapping. It's time to stop and pull the spiles off the trees. Now, one thing I didn't mention earlier was our traditional way of tapping. We talked about the modern historic and historic methods but the traditional pre-contact method that was used well beyond pre-contact. It was used even up until uh, the time of my father's life uh, is hatchet tapping. And hatchet tapping sounds and is a little bit visibly more damaging to the tree, but actually isn't compared to a spile with a drill. Traditional tapping was done with either a hatchet or a tapping wedge. And a tapping wedge was made out of antler. Excuse me, I just had a belch for a second. Been drinking a lot of carbonated water during this episode. But uh, it was done with either a wedge made of antler or, of course, metal. And that wedge could be a chisel if you want to. A one-inch chisel could do the same job. And the first thing you're going to do is you're going to make cedar spiles. And a spile is the same thing as a spout, but it's a little bit different in shape. And what it is, you're splitting it down to about, mm, let's say, quarter-inch thick, maybe a little thinner, like three-sixteenths and about two inches wide, and leave it as long as you need to keep it until you know how short you can have it. And you're going to find about knee-high on the maple tree, sometimes a little lower, and you're going to take your chisel and put it in a, coming in upwards towards the tree at a 45-degree angle, and you're going to tap very lightly and set the, hole, the, the notch into the bark, but not all the way into the sapwood or into the xylem or phloem, into the, into the living tissue of the tree, just that outer bark. And it's just deep enough to tap that spile in so it's held on. And then above that spile, we're going to come in at a 45-degree angle and tilt it inward a bit, so downward, the tip of the chisel or the tapping wedge or a hatchet, and we're going to chop in and make grooves, two grooves, so it's going to, from a distance, have the letter, have like a V shape or a V groove or a chevron. We're going to tap in, and we're going to go two or three inches to the left and two or three inches to the right, with each ending taller than they are from the spile. So again, like the number, like the letter V or the number, the Roman numeral five, if you want to think of it that way, or a chevron. And you're going to tap right into that bark. You're going to go right into that inner bark, not all the way to the wood, just into that inner bark. And it's going to come in at an angle so that it kind of pushes the bark outward as if you're going to carve off the bark. You want to have a trough or a gutter kind of effect going on. And then it's going to start dripping down to the bark just above the spile. So you just take your knife or the chisel or tapping wedge and shave that bark smooth so it has an easy transfer from sap groove to the spile. And then you take a traditional birch bark bucket, which is a large square of birch bark, and you fold the corners up and pin them 
or you can punch a hole through with a magoose or an awl and then stitch that on with a piece of basswood fiber or a piece of spruce root. And you set that bucket underneath that spile and trim the spile so it just rests inside the bucket. Doesn't have to go all the way to the floor of the bucket, just has to go into the bucket. And then you are done. You tap the tree and you can tap that tree once or twice, depending on how big the tree is. Uh, if you're using modern spiles, you should never go past three holes in the tree because you want to make sure that that tree can sustainably give you that sap year after year and let that sap flow up and make sure that the tree continues to grow. But if we're looking at a modern spile, when we make that hole, it goes into the sapwood. It does go into the sapwood. And some people say, carve a dowel and drive that dowel in so that you can plug it up. Well, that hermetically seals any bacteria inside the wood. It starts to cause core rot. And if you leave it open, it can still be exposed to the bugs. And I can tell you right now, I've cut trees down that my grandfather and great grandfather had tapped with modern spiles. And you can see in the grain of the wood where those holes are. It never heals. It never fully heals. It might seal up. But that hole is there for good. It, that damage, that tissue you've removed, that fiber you've removed is gone for good. But I've tapped maple trees that several uh, with a hatchet, with a with a hatchet tapping method. That years later I had to cut that tree down because it was diseased, or it fell down from a storm, or got damaged, or we just needed new firewood, and that maple tree just had to go. And I've cut purposely in those spots and looked, and I cannot, for the life of me find anything except for the design on the bark, the, the the lines left on the outside of the bark. I can't find any evidence in the sapwood of those hatchet taps. And when I was talking with a lot of people like Kevin Finney, Nick Dillingham, and a lot of other folks that have done hatchet tapping methods for their sugar bushes, they've had the same uh, experience where they can't find those marks in the woods. So we know that that tree could fully heal that wound. Even though it's a much larger wound, it's a much shallower wound. And therefore, the tree can heal. It can recover. It can return to how it was before we ever tapped it. And so in my experience, it is much more sustainable and is much less damaging to the, to the environment, especially to the trees themselves. So for me, I prefer to hatchet tap. We do still drill some trees and tap them with modern spiles because of efficiency. You need a lot of sap buckets to get a lot of sap. And so I can only make so many birch bark buckets this time of year on my own. And there's only so many birch trees in the region to replace the old sap buckets. And so for me, I would rather uh, use modern technologies for that perspective. But when I have enough bark, man, I would rather hatch a tap the whole sugar bush. It is much more efficient. And you get more volume because you're going across, you know, six to seven inches worth of sap, of uh, sap filled uh, inner bark. When you, when you hatch a tap, whereas when you drill a hole, you only get that 7 sixteenths to quarter inch hole, right? It's not as big of a hole, therefore you're not getting as much sap. So it's not as efficient in a lot of other ways. Both methods have their own merit is what I'm trying to get at. And my preference is to hatch a tap instead of drill. But anyways, I kind of want to end this not too, too soon. I want to talk a little bit more about the sugar bush. Um, at the very end of this, I'm going to actually list off Anishinaabe Moan words with the best pronunciation I can. I'm not fluent speaker by any means, but I've been working on this list over like 10 years or more now. Some of the words I've had since high school, like Zinsabakwarabo and all that stuff. 
But uh, we're going to end that with that. I'm going to record a three to, three to four minute clip of me just sounding the words out and then saying the English translation and going back and forth with it. But uh, before that, I kind of want to talk about one of my favorite stories about the sugar bush, uh, Anishinaabe stories that I've heard growing up. And it was a Nanabush story. And Nanabush was traveling and he was visiting village to village. He came to this village and there was nobody in the village. Nobody was around. And he heard this moaning off in the bush. And so he went to investigate, which is not something I would do. Because if I hear moaning in the bush, I'm thinking somebody's either getting busy or someone's getting murdered. I don't want to see either of those situations. But Nanabush went to investigate. And he found all the people in the village laying under maple trees that had cut branches and granulated sugar was just falling out of the tree into their mouth. And their bellies were distended, kind of like mine. And they were just been laying there and laying there and sucking up and eating up all this sugar. And so finally, he's like, what? what's going on? How long have they been here? What are they doing? He went over and started asking questions, but nobody answered. They just kept eating the sugar. So he blocked and plugged up one of those cut branches until somebody asked him what he was doing. And then he asked him, well, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? How long have you been here? They said, oh, somebody was cutting wood and they cut this branch and the sugar started falling out. And we've just been here ever since. We've been laying here for like two months now, maybe three months. I don't even know anymore. Just eating sugar all day, all night. And Nana Bojo or Nana Bush or Winana Bojo, however you want to pronounce his name or say his name, he was really upset by this. He's like, this is not how creator made you. This is not how creator wanted to be. You're not walking in that good way anymore. This is, this is not a very good way or healthy way to be. You're getting lazy. You're getting fat and unhealthy. And this is just not good. And so he went to one of those ephemeral ponds, those, those pools of water that happen in the spring in the forest. And he took a macaque, one of those baskets I talked about earlier that are for gathering water. And he scooped water into that basket. And he poured it into the roots of that maple tree. And he poured it again and again. And he said to the maple tree, from now on, you're going to have all this water in that sugar. They're going to boil all this water away and be hard workers. And you're only going to get a few weeks, maybe a month and a half at most, to ever get this sugar from these trees ever again. And he kept pouring and pouring and pouring until he poured a hundred something buckets into that tree. And from then on, there was all that sap, that, uh, all that water we had to boil off. And that's how a lot of people end the story. But I prefer to finish it the way I heard it growing up. And that was the buckets of water ran out. The, the pond dried before he was done with how much water he wanted to put in. So he thought about it for a while. And then he pulled out his pajagan, which is uh, or pajagan or pajagan, depending on your dialect. And that's his, uh, his manhood. And he peed into that tree. That last little bit of water he put in was from his own urine. And he said, there, that's how much you're going to take. And so, so since then, as in the Schnabek, when we're gathering sap, at the very end of the season, the, the sap starts to turn color. It goes from a clear, crystal clear liquid to this kind of yellowish tinge. It's kind of frothy. And it has kind of a funky odor to it. And that's what we call... In the language, his urine or his piss. And that's the last. That's we don't add that to the to the buckets to the to the to the pots boiling. Because we know that we've now reached the very end. We stop gathering sap and we find those buckets like that. However, I've heard more recently that that sap would then be boiled in half volume. So if it was a liter, it'll be boiled down to half a liter. And if you had a gallon, you'd boil it to half a gallon. And that would stabilize it enough that it wouldn't spoil on you. And that, just because it's because of what it is at the end of that life cycle of that tree's growing uh, sap cycle, that has a ton of more medicines in it than the regular sap that we're boiling down for sugar. 
And so that is what we would use for medicine teas. And there's kind of a teaching in Anishinaabek culture that parts of Nanabojo's body that are left on the plants and beings out there in the forest are medicine. Chaga or Shkategon is his scab, a big scab from when he burned his butt trying to bring fire back to the people uh, disguised as a rabbit. So it was burning on his tail. And when he arrived, he turned back into a person and the fire went up into his diosh, into his butt and burned him really badly. And so he sat in the snow for a long time and reached back to check and the scab broke off. He's, oh, this is so gross. And he turned to a birch tree and said, here, take this, carry that. And that scab is chaga, that's shkitegon. And that is a medicine to a lot of people. That is a very powerful medicine that helps balance your insulin. It uh, helps take care of your uh, immune system. It does a bunch of amazing things for your body. But it's a burnt butt cheek from Nanabush. The the red willow, the red osier dog, which gets its, its red color from the anal bleeding. I hate to say this on, on record, but it's from the anal bleeding of Nanabojo when he had uh, horrible digestive issues. And he ended up wiping himself with that red willow and turned it red with his blood from his from his butt from its bleeding. And the same thing with that urine at the end. It's these things are strong medicines that come from his body. And a lot of people laugh at that. But then you look at the, the Christian uh, tradition of communion where you're drinking his blood and eating his flesh. You're, you're consuming Jesus' flesh and blood. Not too different from us Nishnabic consuming the flesh of Nanabojo, the, the, the blood of Nanabojo, and the urine of Nanabojo. It's not too far off, though it sounds a little grosser to some people. But that's how we end our sugar bush, is when we see that yellow frothy liquid that's in those buckets. We know that's the end of the season. We no longer run the sugar bush. And I guess that's how we're going to end this podcast, is with that part of the story. It's an important time of our year as Nishnabe, as I said at the beginning, this is Ziguan. We're coming into Ziguan now, that early spring, that time when the sap is running. And there's so much benefit of that sugar bush to us as Anishinaabek people. That's my therapy for the springtime. Last year, we ran our sugar bush all through March. And that was when the pandemic hit. And I was very mentally sound during the sugar bush. And I already know that now that I'm planning to make my sugar bush again for this year, I'm already feeling better. I'm already feeling happier. I'm feeling more hopeful. I'm, I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm seeing the silver lining again because the sugar bush is where I get all my healing. And I'm really blessed that way. I know not all of us have that privilege. And so I think about all of you when I'm out there. I'll be thinking about all of you listeners who may not be able to experience that same experience like I do. And I'll be praying for you and thinking good thoughts for you because I'll be in a good place and I want all of you to be in a good place. And with that, I want to end this podcast again. There's going to be a couple minutes of me reading and translating Anishinaabe Moen into English of our sugar bush words. Words like the ones I've said in this podcast, Zin Sabakwat, Zin Sabakwarabo, Naseyan, all these different words. Uh, you're going to understand what they mean at the end of this podcast. So enjoy that. I also want to thank, before I end this, uh, the people that helped inspire this episode. Because although I was planning on doing this at some point, uh, we have an amazing group of supporters at Patreon, uh, patreon.com 
uh, is where Canadian Bushcraft gets its financial financial support to continue this podcast and to get the right kind of equipment, like this amazing little portable sound booth and the microphone that's in that sound booth and the headphones I'm wearing to make sure that everything sounds proper and good and the electricity and the internet we have in my house right now so that we can record these things all comes from you amazing supporters over at Patreon. And we pitched to our patrons, our supporters over there, that they should have a right to choose episodes. More than just the uh, every month we always do, of course, the patrons decide an episode. We give them a couple of options and they choose one. But we also want to say, hey, if there's an episode you want to hear, that you want to hear us talk about a subject, give it to us. Give us that subject. Tell us what you want us to talk about. And we will fit it into our schedule so that we can do that episode for you. Because you, dear supporter, dear, dear patron over at Patreon, are really our financial backers. And in a sense, our producers, you are the financial supporter of this podcast. And therefore you have a say in what's in this podcast. So this episode was inspired by people like Sherry Ann from Blue Jay Botanicals, uh, Nikki Satira, of course, who was a huge supporter of this idea, as well as Sammy, uh, our good friend, Sammy, who's a, a carver and a little tiny, like little wood fairy that just runs around, does amazing things in the woods. I absolutely love her. But, uh, all these amazing people who pitched this idea when we offered this option of saying, hey, give us your input. Overwhelming request for this episode about sugar bush and the maple sugars and all that kind of beautiful stuff. So thank you to all of them. Thank you to all of our patrons who keep this podcast going. And if you want to have your say as well, jump on over to Patreon, look up the Canadian Bushcraft podcast, and you will find us there, or just Canadian Bushcraft, and you will find us there. And it doesn't matter if you're a $1 tier supporter or a $50 tier supporter, you get to have your say with us. And with all that being said, thank you all for tuning in. Please enjoy this horrible attempts of me of translating Anishinaabemowin and pronouncing Anishinaabemowin regarding the sugar bush. Take care, folks. And of course, to all of you out there that are getting inspired by this, be safe out there and enjoy the sugar bush. Anishinaabe Moen for the sugar bush. Ininanatic. 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 Sugar maple. Zinsabakwat watig. Zinsabakwat watig. Sugar maple. Another way of saying it. Zinsabakwat abu. Zin sabakwat abo. Zin sabakwat abo. Maple sap or the sweet water. Zhuwag amizigan. Zhuwag amizigan. Zhuwag amizigan or amizigan. Maple syrup. Zin sabakwat. Zin sabakwat. Zin sabakwat. Maple sugar. Begu is again. Begu is a gun. Begu is a gun. Maple candy or taffy. Biscuit to noggin. Biscuit to noggin. Biscuit to noggin. A sap bucket made from folded birch bark. Iske gamizagan. Iske gamizagan. A sugar camp or sugar bush. Zinsabakwat onagans. Zinsabakwat onagans. Zin sabakwat onagans, a sugaring trough, literally a maple sugar bowl. Nasea wan guan, 
Nasea Wan Guan. Nasea Wan Guan. A sugaring trough. Gashka Kokoega. Gashka Kokoegan. Gashka Kokoegan. Gashka Kokoegan. Gashka Kokoegan. A sugaring paddle. You can also say Zin Sabakwat Abwe, but it literally would translate as sugar paddle. Zin Sabakwat Oke. Zin Sabakwat Oke. Zin Sabakwat Oke. She or he makes sugar. Naseon. 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 Stirring to form sugar. Ombe Gamizagan. Ombe gamizagan. Ombe gamizagan. Boiling off sap into sugar. Ombe gamizage. Ombe gamizage. Ombe gamizage. She or he is sugaring. Ziga igan. Ziga igan. Ziga igan. A sugaring cone or cake. Ziga iganake. Ziga iganake. She or he makes a sugar cone or cake. Ojikwigan. 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 A tapping wedge. Neguakwan. 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 A flat spile made of cedar. Ne 